On this edition of the Scott Radley podcast, we are going to be talking about juries on the 25th anniversary of the conviction of Paul Bernardo. One of the jurors who put him in jail has tried to get some changes made to make things better for jurors who deal with some very difficult stuff. Has she had any traction? Well, we're going to talk to her and find out. We're also going to talk about something far lighter, cruising. You're probably thinking about a Christmas, a Christmas, a winter vacation now, some of you anyway, because that's what you normally do when September rolls around. And maybe you think about going on a cruise. It's going to be way different if you go. How different? Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Didn't realize it until this morning and then saw something. I don't know if it was on Twitter or Facebook or written or something. Anyway, it it struck me as unfathomable that it's been 25 years today since Paul Bernardo was found guilty and was convicted. Just, it it can't possibly be that long, but it is. Uh, The good news from this is that Paul Bernardo has now been locked up for a quarter century, which is where hopefully he will be until... Well, for another quarter century and maybe another quarter century after that, and until there's no more need to be talking about Paul Bernardo. The bad news, I suppose, is that he remains one of those names that fascinates people, which uh, I've never quite figured out, but it's, it's absolutely true. And the other bad news from this story, 25 years on, is that some problems with the jury system that were highlighted by some of the people who were involved in this and in other trials, to be fair, remain problems despite efforts being made to fix them. One of the people who's been fighting hardest to make things better for jurors in tough trials happens to be one of the jurors who found Bernardo guilty. Her name is Tina Danzer. She's the COO and CFO of the Canadian Juries Commission, which is a not-for-profit group trying to improve conditions for juries in Canada. She joins me now. Tina, thanks for doing this. Scott, how are you? I am great. I, thanks for coming back on. For those who, Tina was on a number of years ago, and we'll get to that in just a second because we were hoping for a more upbeat update, but we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Just before I do, I mentioned just before I brought you in the fact that Paul Bernardo remains really of high interest to people. Mention his name and you're still going to get a reaction and you're probably going to get a conversation started. People may be disgusted with themselves that they feel that way, but why do you think that is? Why has he remained such an object of fascination in this country? Well, you know, if you if you're of a certain age, uh, yes. everybody knew about it. It was one of the most horrific trials ever in Canada, and it happened exactly at the same time as the O.J. Simpson trial in the United States. And so, this was this big thing in Canada. You know, and it was those, those horrible, horrendous videos. It was really the first time in history that a trial had used that much graphic video evidence in order to make their case. And I'm guessing, Tina, that, and I'm sure you don't walk around with a button on your lapel saying I was a Bernardo juror, but I'm guessing that if it ever does come up, that is something that you have a hard time not having a conversation with someone about. Everybody would want to know about that. Correct. Correct. Yeah. People do want to know about it. They want, and, and they always say, oh, poor you. And, and I, I do agree uh, to a certain extent. I mean, I, I'm still very proud of having done my civic duty in this case. But yes, oh, poor me, because it was very traumatic for me. It greatly affected my mental health. Um, luckily, 
the judge on the trial, Justice Lesage, recognized that the trauma the jury was going through and requested that they receive uh, psychological uh, help, mental health help. And that is not always the case for all juries. That is on a case-per-case basis requested by a judge. Well, and you sat through, and, and, you know, again, most people I think listening remember this or of an age that they probably remember, maybe not every detail or how long. This was four months, and so yeah. much of what you listened to, again, if, if, if people don't know this, I mean, it was nasty. And when I say nasty, I mean, this is real. This is not a horror movie or some sort of made-up thing. This was horrible, horrible, nasty stuff. If you had not had him offer that kind of help, what, what, what would you be dealing with? Uh, well, I, I, I guess I would have had to pay for it out of my own pocket because uh, upon receiving the counseling, I was diagnosed with PTSD. As you probably know, PTSD doesn't just happen after a day. It happens after repeated trauma. And that was the issue that the jurors had to watch those videos over and over and over again one day, you know, this many times, the next day, the next day, the next day. And so repeatedly watching those without, you have to remember as a juror, when you go home, you're not allowed to talk to your spouse about this or your family or your friends. You can't explain what you saw. You can't explain what you've been through. And so you, and it's one of the things that we're advocating for is not just post-trial mental health Uh, counseling. We're also asking that in a case where a judge recognizes that the trial they're going to be uh, overseeing is going to be extremely difficult, that they assign a, a mental health professional to the case to be sworn in, that jurors could go and see and kind of debrief and, and decompress before they go home to their family. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. A couple of years ago, uh, Tina, you were on the show here, maybe more than a couple of years ago now, I can't even remember. And at that time, we were talking about how you had started to really make a push as, a, as through your uh, group to try to get changes to help people who were in, in positions like you were facing really difficult stuff they had to watch and difficult situations. What's happened since then? I mean, has there been any improvement? Has there been any light at the end of the tunnel for jurors? Well, you're probably talking about 2017 when we appeared in front of the House of Commons Justice and Human Rights Committee. That would be it. Yep, that would be it. Out of that came a year-long study, and out of that study came 11 recommendations to improve jury duty and mental health. So far, we're now in 2020, and uh, none of those recommendations has been uh, adopted into policy. So we are now vigorously pushing the government to make those changes. Um, it's not just, you know, it's, it's, it's supporting, it's better mental health for jurors. It is um, uh, increasing jury pay to a minimum of $120 per day starting from day one because people are always going, uh, saying we need to change the faces of juries to better reflect society. The issue is, is that the government mandates that an employer must keep your job for you, but they must not continue to pay you. So the only people who sit on juries are people who work for large corporations who continue to get paid or senior citizens who have the time and are collecting a pension. Now you come up with COVID and seniors are one of the most vulnerable sections of society 
they're no longer going to want to sit on juries. So you're also, you're canceling out almost more, probably more than 50% of the population that works as uh, for a small business, if you're a small business owner or you're a minimum job uh, employee, you can't uh, afford to take four months off of your job and not get paid. You need to sustain yourself. So this is not that we're asking the, the, the government to pay jurors. We're just asking them to pay them a minimum wage so that they can provide for themselves and their family. If you think about, say, in Toronto, you have a senior citizen who's on a fixed income who has to drive downtown Toronto every day and park his car. Let's call it $25 a day. After two months or after four months, you're now out of pocket $2,000 after tax. That's a senior on a fixed income. Why? Why are why are we responsible to pay for the expenses of something that is our civic duty, which is important, but you sure shouldn't it is. have to be out of pocket for this? What about daycare? You know, back when I did this 25 years ago, I was a stay-at-home mom, and so were all my friends. So I could call up and say, hey, I'm going to be late coming from court. Can you grab my kids and feed them a snack? That doesn't exist anymore. Now, if you pick up your kid late from daycare, it's like $20 a minute or something crazy <laughs> in Toronto. So you need to you need to cover those costs. If you Why has this not happened, though, Tina? I mean, you, you came up with or the, these 11 recommendations came up. They were a government panel. It wasn't like you pulled them out of thin air. Why has nothing happened? I, I don't really know what to say to that. Maybe that the wheels of government turn slowly. I... I don't understand. It's a nonpartisan issue. There is no, not, not one party that would say, oh, this is not a good idea. Everybody thinks this is a great idea, so why not make it happen? I don't understand it myself. And this is why we keep pushing and pushing, because as you know, starting next week, jury trials are going to commence again, and there are a lot of issues, not just that were happening before, but due to covid you know, people are worried about their health, going into a courtroom where there's, uh, you know, a few hundred other people waiting to be uh, questioned to see if they will be sitting on a jury. There's a there's a lot of issues at hand, and I don't really see much progress happening. You know, and, and there are, there's really a, a couple issues that you point to. One is the financial side, which makes a lot of sense. The other, as we talked about off the top, the psychological, the emotional side of this, not every trial is going to have those, but again, there, they come up now and then. And I'm wondering, I mean, this is 25 years ago. How, do you ever, even now, a quarter century later, do you ever think about that trial? Does it ever pop into your head? Oh, definitely. You have to remember that, you know, was it uh, 2018, he came up for parole. Every time there's a story in the media about Carla Hamolka, every anniversary, I, I think about the French and Mahaffey family who, who it's, it breaks my heart what, what happened to those families and, and you know, that, that victims suffer and, and, and victims don't get supported. And, and so there's just really a lot wrong with the system. But, but this is the one thing that, that I have been advocating to change with my partner, Mark Ferrant who is the, the CEO of, and founder of the Canadian Juries Commission. And we just hope that at one point the government will say, okay, we, we really have to follow through on, on the recommendations that we ourselves made. 
Well, as you say, last time we talked, you're probably right. I think it was 2017 at that time. That's when you were here. And hopefully the next time we talk, it won't be in three years to say that nothing has happened. Uh, Hopefully the next time we talk, you'll be able to say, hey, you know what? They finally did something and now people aren't going to have to go through what I went through or at least not the same way. Tina Danzer, really appreciate you taking some time today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks so much, Scott. Bye. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me remind you that we are now in September. It is September the 1st, which is kind of shocking to me. And that means that pretty soon things are going to start to cool off a bit. Not tomorrow, not the next day, as you just heard Ben read, but um, soon we're going to start having those chilly autumn days. And that means people are going to start contemplating what to do about winter vacations, at least in normal circumstances, in normal years they would start to think about what they're going to do with winter vacations. We don't know what's going to happen this winter. Maybe COVID settles down. Maybe by the new year, people are traveling again, heading down south. Some people will be trying to do it anyway or not. We'll see. But here's the thing. One of the types of vacation that a lot of people listening, a lot of people would be contemplating, again, under normal circumstances, would be a cruise. And yet, there may not be an industry, not just travel industry, an industry period. There may not be an industry that has been as thoroughly affected by the pandemic as the cruise industry has been. For months now, nobody's been cruising. The ships have not been used. In fact, I think it's off the, it's either off the California coast or off the Florida coast. There's an armada of empty cruise ships just bobbing around because they can't be ported anywhere and they can't take people. So they're just floating in the middle of the ocean off the coast. And with no idea when people are going to be able to get back on again. Well, except in Asia where they're starting to come back. And there's now talk of cruise ships picking up bit by bit here in North America. The question is when they finally roll out the gangplank again and say, yeah, you can come back on board. What is cruising going to look like? Well, let me bring in Sherry Laskin, who is the, she's a contributor to cruise radio and she is the creator of cruisemaven.com. Sherry, thanks for doing this today. We are thrilled to have you back. Um, cause this is a, this is an interesting one because so many people in the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years, cruising has become such a popular thing to do. And then all of a sudden just the brakes completely slammed onto this. And when it gets going again, when people start to contemplate whether to do this or not again, it, I can't imagine that it's going to look the same as it did before, is it? It's going to be a strange, a strange new world. And, you know, first we have to make sure that we're just waiting for the CDC to lift their no-sale order, which right now extends to October 31st from North America. But, yeah, it's gonna, everything's going to be totally different, and you'll notice it from embarkation through the inside of the ship when you go to port. And, you know, I could just begin for, for a moment here and just say that, you know, even when ships do begin sailing, whenever that could be, sometime maybe November, you said you sounded, you sounded a little bit hopeful that something might happen. But they're going to be sailing anywhere from 40 to 70 percent passenger capacity. So right there, you're going to feel like you have more of the ship to yourself than you would have if it was sailing totally full at, you know, with triple and quadruple people in cabins. Um, over in Italy, uh, the MSC Grandiosa just resumed cruising a couple of weeks ago, and they said they capped the amount of passengers at 70%. So does that mean, I mean, I'm, I'm no accountant, uh, I'm not necessarily a businessman either, but I'm looking at this going, okay, you've got a ship, 
you got ship companies that have taken huge debts to try and buy these brand new fancy ships that some of them cost over a billion dollars. You got to pay your staff. You've got to pay for the fuel. You've got to pay for food. You got to pay all these things. And now you've only got 70% of capacity. Is it an obvious conclusion then that the cost of cruising is going to go way up? You know, I've heard that and, and it costs them so millions of dollars every month just to not be sailing. So it would seem logical that they would have to raise the the, the fares or the um, activities on board just to try to, you know, make, they're not going to make a profit, but to at least try to break even if possible. And there's going to be so many new um, things that you will see on board. I just read the other day that some cruise lines are thinking of testing passengers right at the port for COVID-19. So who knows, you can see pop-up medical tents at the port and and that's going to delay boarding because you have to wait for your negative test results. And who's going to pay for all that? Is that going to come out of the cruise line's pocket? So somehow they're going to have to figure out the financials in order to move forward, forward with everything else that has to be determined. Before we get onto the ship, and I want to talk about some of the things that you think might happen on there in a second, but before we even get there, Based on what happened and based on when COVID first broke out and there was that ship in Japan that I can't remember, there Thailand, Thailand, wherever it was out East, um, that mm-hmm. couldn't come back into port and there were hundreds of people. I, I, I'm just wondering, there are people who already believe that ships are floating Petri dishes and I'm wondering how much of a marketing job they're going to have to do to convince people just to decide to book on them before they even get to what you're going to see on the ship. How much of a challenge is it going to be just to get people to say, I'll do it again? Well, I think that your diehard cruisers that are just chomping at the bit to get on board, they're going to be the first ones to book. In fact, they're already booking for late 2021 and into 22, actually. But it's going to be the first-time cruisers that I think are going to – the cruise lines will have the toughest time to convince them to get on board. Um, You know, their reasons have always been, you know, like you said, it's a Petri dish. Everybody gets sick. They're in herds and, you know, and all this. So – that's going to be the challenge is to get um, people that are on the fence about cruising or the I will never cruise group and try to get them to experience cruising. Because we all know once you go on one cruise, you are hooked unless you're you know, a total seasick person. But other than that, yeah, there's going to be a lot of changes. It does seem to be that. So, okay, so now we, 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 get you, we get you lined up. We're gonna, you've, you've made a reservation. You're going to go. You say, you get to the port. I've been reading that, as you say, you may get a, a COVID test right there. I, I wonder if there's going to come a point when you have to show up a day before or something to get the test done, come to the port the day before, and then come back the next day. I've read that somewhere. They're doing, in some cases, they're talking about doing the temperature tests right there, although I have no idea how accurate those things are. But they're going to have to do something, even if they don't really want to, ca- or don't really care about catching it, to it reassure people that they're doing something. Yeah, so I really do think they're going to have to test the date of. Otherwise, they're going to have, I would think, um, Passengers would be required to self-isolate until boarding the next day. But who knows? You know, there's just so many changes. Luggage. What are you going to do with the luggage? That, that will have to be sprayed with disinfectant before it's delivered to your room, I would think. That's, I read that somewhere. And, you know, if, people, if, if you, you have been to a terminal during prime time, uh, you know that the check-in line can have hundreds of people just crammed together. So... You know, to deal with that, I would think they're going to have to schedule arrival times 
but be more strict because they already do schedule check-in and arrival times. But you know, people meander in, they come late, they come early. So that's going to need to be more strictly enforced, I would think. And even how the, the check-in staff handles everything, you know, they're going to, you know, I'm sure you'll see a lot of plexiglass, hand sanitizer, masks and gloves. But, you know, what are you going to do with your passport and you have to swipe a credit card and all that? So that has to be determined and figured out even before you set foot on the ship. Well, you said masks. Uh, you know, this one, I can't even imagine that once you get on, you're supposed to be on vacation. You're supposed to be letting your hair down. Uh, I, I'm not disputing masks as a good tool, but I'm saying if you're on a ship, do people really want to wear a mask all day long when they're walking around on their vacation? You know, that's, that's been talked about to the nth degree. And no, no one wants to have to do that. But will you? What will it be required? Yes, in the inside or indoor venues, people are going to have to wear a mask at least for a few months until they get used to it. When you're in your stateroom, of course not. When you're outside, that probably will depend on where you're going and 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 uh, the port's requirements. But you're going to have to. You're you're going to be around hundreds of people, even at seventy or forty percent occupancy. There's going to be hundreds of people milling about. And I would think, actually, I would think that if the cruise lines gave everybody a logo mask and take it home for a <laughs> washable logo mask, everyone would wear it or something with a cute, you know, cruise on and, or something like that. I think people would be more apt to put something on just to be uh, different. The one of the things that I, I saw that, and this one, boy, this is. There are a few things that are synonymous. When you talk about cruising, there are a few things that people think about. One of them is endless food, endless buffets. And I've been reading buffets are going to, for the time being anyway, be a complete thing of the past. There may still be buffets of a kind, but you will not be serving yourself at all. This is going to be all staff doing the serving. Does that throw people off? Or as long as there's food, they don't really care how it lands on their plate. Yeah, I think it will throw people off, but just as you said, as long as they can walk through the buffet and pick and choose, someone else will be serving them, and that someone else will be fully garbed, probably in, in you know with eyewear, mask, gloves, maybe even a hazmat suit. Who knows? But yeah, <laughs> everyone will be served. <laughs> That's reassuring. I'll have a couple of shrimp if yeah, you don't mind. <laughs> You know, you sound like Darth Vader when you're breathing there from behind the counter. Yes. No, that's, I, I mean, that's one thing. And I mean, if that is going to be weird and, and maybe it won't discourage people from being on a ship, but if you're on there and the staff are wearing hazmat suits, I'm not sure that's reassuring again to the people who are just trying to have a fun vacation. But think about the experience you could talk about when you come home, you know, you're one of the first on board during this. When they resume sailing, I mean, that would really be an amazing experience. All the photos with people with their masks and their gloves. But, you know, I'm trying to put a positive spin on it, but it's going to be crazy. <laughs> they, somebody suggested yeah. that, you know what, the, the, that point, though, about staff, we may see not only because of the cost, as you've pointed to, that, you know, if we can have fewer people on board, you're going to want to have less staff to pay less bills. Um, but also for passing a potential virus around, we may see a lot more technology on the ship. Royal Caribbean, I believe about a year or a year and a half ago on some of their ships had introduced an automated robotic bartender. 
And they're saying you may see an awful lot more stuff like this, where you just punch in your information and there's nobody there to deal with you. You just do it yourself. Yeah, and that that goes to um, a lot of the cruise lines now have those wristbands or a medallion type device that passengers use to unlock their stateroom doors, and they can use it to pay for everything on board. So, you know, they're moving towards a touchless type system. Um, but a lot of the older ships aren't equipped for that yet, and that's going to take a while. But once that is, that will be standard, I would think. That way you don't have to touch anything or trade your, your, that, you know, your key card. Everyone touches it and you take it back. They're also going to have to work on the ventilation system to make sure that fresh air is coming in, as well as putting HEPA filters in all the air conditioning systems. So, you know, that's another something behind the scenes that you really don't see, but has to be done. And going back to what you mentioned about uh, the healthcare, care, uh, the crew will need to be trained more. They're going to have to learn how to really deep sanitize and, and learn new health protocols. And one thing that I really hope is that they have qualified doctors on staff on board. I was on a, a transatlantic a few years ago, and the doctor on board was actually a dentist. <laughs> and I, I said to him, well, are you, are you serious? And he said, yes, I've fixed broken bones before. And I'm thinking, well, that's all that, if that's the, you know, the worst that happens on a seven-day transatlantic, that's wonderful. But, um, yeah, they really need to have people that are trained in dealing with an inf- COVID-19. And they're going to have to expand their medical facilities also, like you said, and have more. Uh, I don't know h- how you could you know, do something with a robotics scanner but who knows maybe they could come up with something that would take a temperature or you know have a station where you can get monitored for a temperature or who knows what but as for that doctor (laughs) as for that doctor sure i mean i i I hate to point out the obvious but um when he says that he's dealt with broken bones before and he's a dentist teeth are bones no wonder he's dealt with broken bones before. He was hiding behind the fact that teeth are bones. Anyway, that's um, brilliant. <laughs> yeah, well, see, he was not lying to you, but it was a chipped tooth that he dealt with. He never reset a femur. Um, that's right. Listen, we, we got to let you go, but uh, do you suspect that all, any of these things that they're going to do become permanent? I mean, a lot of times you take an opportunity when there is a situation and you bring in some ideas that you've wanted to implement anyway. Or do you think the cruise ships want to get back to where they were as previous normal as fast as humanly possible? Well, you know, I think that if they want to attract new cruisers, and that's their end goal, you know, you want to keep your existing passengers, but you want to attract new people. And if you can show that you are going above and beyond to prevent, uh, you know, all the other viruses that transmit on ships, or just keeping it extra sanitary, I think if they... If they go that extra yard and maintain what they're trying to achieve now, I think that it will become a permanent fixture. You know, that way people will feel more comfortable that we're on the fence, that weren't sure about going. And your longtime cruisers will just take everything in stride and realize that if they want to keep going, this is the world how, how it is now on a ship. Sherry Laskin, you can find her online at cruisemaven.com. You can read her stuff there. Sherry, always appreciate you coming on. Thanks for taking some time tonight. Oh, you're welcome, Scott. Thanks so much. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. 
The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.